in case of Azerbaijan, our relationship with the United Nations has been a successful story. And we are happy that it is still ongoing, expanding, and we would be happy to, to enrich it with more substance. Hi everyone, I'm Natalie Alexander and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives Geneva, designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. In this episode, we continue our series of conversations with ambassadors to the United Nations Geneva, where we explore with them their experiences as diplomats and what the UN means for their countries today, as we look to the multilateralism we need for our future. Today, our director, Francesco Pisano, is joined by the permanent representative and ambassador of the Republic of Azerbaijan to the UN in Geneva, Galib Israfilov. In March 1992, Azerbaijan joined the United Nations. With this year marking 30 years of accession, Ambassador Israfilov shares some of the history of the nation, its regional role today, and his own reflections on the importance of multilateralism from his experiences as both a bilateral and multilateral diplomat. Let's take a listen. Welcome everyone to a new episode of our ambassador series here with the United Nations Library and Archives in Geneva. This is the next page, the podcast designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today in the studio, together with me, is Ambassador Galib Israelifov of Azerbaijan. He's the permanent representative of Azerbaijan to the UN in Geneva since 2021, relatively new, and he did his studies on international relations in Azerbaijan and the United States. He was ambassadors to Austria, Slovenia, and Slovakia before getting to Geneva, and he also represented his country to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. His experience with the UN is not limited to Geneva. He served also in postings in Vienna, in New York, and since last year here in Geneva, as I said, as the permanent representative of Azerbaijan to the UN in Geneva. Ambassador Excellency, welcome to the podcast. And why don't you introduce yourself and tell us and our audience how you became a diplomat and eventually the permanent representative of Azerbaijan. Well, good morning to everyone and thank you for this opportunity. Director Pizano, I appreciate this chance to introduce myself as a newly appointed ambassador and permanent representative of Azerbaijan to Geneva. I'm here for a relatively short period of time, but already feel myself as if I am here for a while already. Uh, and the reason for that is that issues at the agenda of most of international organizations are pretty much the same, like they are in uh, Vienna or in New York. And the positions of the countries which are regularly expressed and they are echoing their colleagues in the respective capitals. So I'm a career diplomat since 96 and uh, have entered the foreign ministry officially right after the uh, graduation of the university. The choice of being a diplomat again was impacted by a combination of factors, education, and uh, I also enjoyed learning languages as well as political geography. 
On the other hand, I uh, graduated from the secondary school in the period when the USSR collapsed and uh, Azerbaijan restored its independence. And this were the difficult periods of transitioning from the planned economy and the country which was limited in rights and freedoms to the independent state with the market economy, with democratic institutions, with a vibrant civil society. And the many challenges and injustices committed against Azerbaijan have shaped the political landscape of the country. And as a young uh, individual who had graduated from the school, I was uh, very much impressed by these injustices. And of course, one of the options was to continue my study in the diplomacy area in international relations in parallel with the languages which I learned. That's how I entered the Baku State University and the Faculty of International Relations. It was recently opened. Uh, we didn't have such a faculty before because during the Soviet Union, all of those diplomats were prepared in Moscow. And I didn't have a chance to be part of that because after the collapse, uh, that quotas which existed, they disappeared for Azerbaijan. I believe it's uh, for the better that I had the chance to be one of the first graduates of our own university. And the other factor, of course, is the challenges that Azerbaijan faced. The collapse, uh, the economic the relations disruptions because of the collapse of the former empire had also accompanied with a number of political and uh, social challenges, and that also triggered an uh, independence movement within Azerbaijan. And uh, the people demanded more freedoms, more rights, and we were also active part of a student movement within the university, which has also asked for more opportunities in uh, uh, going into the closed pages of history of the USSR and bringing more clarity and transparency to the political establishment, to the institutional building of the state. These were the few elements in brief which I can explain uh, why I decided to become a, a diplomat. And then after the graduation, I joined the foreign ministry. For those who didn't have a chance to visit your country, how would you present Azerbaijan briefly and maybe mention the key moments of its history? Well, historically, Azerbaijan has been geographically located at the crossroads of East and West, South and North, Asia and Europe, and richness in uh, natural resources, location on the Silk Road, on major trade routes as well as the open-minded and tolerant character of our society, somehow predetermined the historical and political events within Azerbaijan. We are a very multicultural, multi-ethnic society. More than 30 nationalities can be found living in Azerbaijan. Again, I'm speaking about nationalities which are remaining up to now but if you go a bit deeper into the history, the numbers might be multiplied. Mm -hmm. 
secondly, Azerbaijan is very multi-religious society. Despite the fact that we are predominantly Muslim society, we have, for instance, one of the biggest compact settlement of Jews who are living for millennia in Azerbaijan and uh, have not experienced any discrimination. On the contrary, they have been one of the active members of our society in the parliament, in the state structures, in the militaries, and promoting independence and uh, prosperity of Azerbaijani nation. We have a number of Christian uh, congregations living in Azerbaijan, Orthodox, Protestants, Catholics, as well as others. And uh, this is also a historical legacy of Azerbaijan because we were Islamized in the 7th century and before that most of the central and western part of Azerbaijan were Christians and we still have the historical Christian community which are dating back to the 1st or 2nd century of uh, current era of Anno Domino and uh, they claim the descendants came from uh, Jesus Christ and the apostles who were accompanying him. So it's again another layer of multicultural uh, aspect, which is very peculiar for Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is also famous for its richness in oil and gas. Some says that can be a, a curse, but it can also be a blessing. And if you use these resources wisely, if you manage to mobilize these resources for current generation, as well as to project these resources for future development of uh, the society and country in general, then they are becoming a necessary fuel to empower and to prosper the society and, and the country in general and to transform this black fuel into the human potential, into education, into health, into social services sector. So these are also peculiarities of Azerbaijan. Economically, Azerbaijan is also one of the richest countries in terms of uh, geographic vantages. We have nine out of 13 climatic zones existing in the world, and it's from continental to the tropical and to desert climates, whatever you can imagine, except two which are on the polar, so those are not available in Azerbaijan. It is very arable agricultural land, and we can produce everything from citruses, kiwis and bananas to potatoes or apples. That also uh, helps to ensure our food security, to ensure stability and economic independence in terms of the livelihood of the population. And uh, finally, Azerbaijan is also very rich in its culture. So if you look at the first opera in the Muslim, it was written in Azerbaijan. In the 1908, one of the first Azerbaijani composers who have written this opera and put it in play. In 1918, uh, established the women's suffrage and the right to vote for women, well ahead of many, many uh, European and other countries in this. Azerbaijan in 1918 established its first democratic republic. 
We're currently living in the Third Republic. The First Republic was in 1918 and it existed for two years. Since uh, 1920 until 1991, we were part of the Soviet Union. And in 1991, we restored our independence and started again to be in full command of our rich resources, of our rights and freedoms, as well as uh, investing into the prosperity of our nation. You mentioned before that... Azerbaijan sits at the crossroads between East and West, and actually the South Caucasus area has a very dynamic history, especially during the 19th and 20th century. I was wondering, what is Azerbaijan's regional role in this area? And maybe after that, if you could um, tell our audience, what are the main challenges and hopes of Azerbaijan as a nation in the world of today? Well, again, I will probably speak of the modern history of Azerbaijan and modern policy of our government. Since 1991, we inherited the problems of the former Soviet empire, where in principle, starting not from zero, but from minus industrial and uh, economic uh, might of Azerbaijan during the Soviet times was inextricably linked to the chain of supplies, to the planned economy and the Soviet-type relationship existing between the republics. But once we disintegrated this economic challenges, they have overburdened the society, the government, and that is why we were in the search of dire need of, of investments and uh, technological advances, which we could have brought into the country and uh, stimulated the economic development and the growth. In parallel to that, we were subjected to military intervention by our neighbor, and uh, a significant part of the territory of Azerbaijan were under occupation, and Azerbaijanis were living in this territory, were expelled from this uh, historical lands, and uh, this has created a humanitarian catastrophe in Azerbaijan. Millions of Azerbaijanis were displaced around the country. And uh, you can imagine the difficult choices which the government faced at that time in the beginning of the 90s. And again, thanks to the wise decisions of our first national leader of Azerbaijan, Heydar Aliyev, who managed to mobilize economy to sign a ceasefire agreement with the support of the mediators in 1994. Within a very short period of time, Azerbaijan have signed dozens of oil and gas contracts. In 1994, we've signed the ceasefire agreement on 10th of May. On 24th of May, we presented our framework partnership program to NATO and became a NATO partnership for peace country. And in September of 94, we've signed 21 biggest international contracts worth more than 250 billions of dollars and this money have helped us to stabilize the country, 
to stand up and to put on a stable development path economy and the society in general. That was one of the fundamental decisions which impacted on the perception how Azerbaijan has to develop and to pursue its policy in the region. So since 93-94, up until now, Azerbaijan has been developing as a non-aligned, non-member country of any military or alliances, blocs, and not a member of any economic unions. So we are basing, uh, providing our security and our stability based on our own people and our own resources. We are not covered by any security umbrella from east or west or north or anywhere. That is probably the benefit of it, that we can feel independent. We can pursue our policy without due regard to the ambitions or geopolitics in the current world. And I believe current generation of Azerbaijan is indeed getting the benefits of this policy because we see what is taking place around us. We see how countries of former Soviet Union are struggling to maintain their independence, while in our case, of course, it is difficult to strengthen and to improve the situation. But I believe we are on a better part now than we were in the beginning of 90s. And that has brought a lot of trust and reliability to the policy of Azerbaijan. We are now recognized as a partner in many aspects, in many respects. Azerbaijan has used its strong authority and position to open up the Caspian region for cooperation. We have uh, managed to build trans-regional infrastructure for extracting and transporting the oil and gas resources of the Caspian Sea countries to the Western markets. And the Western markets are our major destination. Although we have seven pipelines, only four of them are going into the Western directions. But the diversification is an advantage in this respect. So we are probably the only country which can be proud of this achievement because this has taken a lot of efforts on the part of our country to in attract investors, to bring in technologies, to talk to your neighbors and to convince them that this is not against the interest of your neighbors, but on the contrary, for the benefits of the region in general. So we did not lose our times. We did not depend on others. We relied on ourselves and it helped us to build our economy, to build our military potential, to build our independence and to bring up the living standards of Azerbaijanis to the high-level middle-income country, which we are now developing country. In the meantime, we have also managed last year to restore our territorial integrity. These actions were based on the norms and uh, principles of international law. We were acting in self-defense and also in line with the Charter of United Nations, which provides us this right. In the meantime, we had 
carried out this military operation, counter-operation, with uh, particular due regard to the humanitarian principles and, and norms. So now we have created a new reality in the region. We are in favor of closing the chapter of the conflict. We're in favor of establishing normal, predictable, and uh, mutually beneficial relationships with all our neighbors. And we believe that this region has to be free of conflict, has to be free of dividing light, has to be free of foreign troops, I would say. It has to be seen as the source of inspiration, source of creativity, source of development, but not as a source of tension. So this is the policy of Azerbaijan in the current world. And uh, we are also investing a lot into the rehabilitation and reconstruction of the liberated territories. My appointment to Geneva from Vienna is also predictable. The government currently is more concentrated on the reintegration of Azerbaijani IDPs back into their territories where they live. For that, I'm also working closely with the humanitarian structures which are present here. Economic rehabilitation, which is also necessary, environmental rehabilitation of the territories. I'm working with a number of UN specialized agencies as well as other international organizations to bring their expertise and knowledge to help us with the rehabilitation. And of course, we are inviting the private sector, other neighboring regional countries to help us with those efforts. So you mentioned when Azerbaijan recovered its independence, and that was in 1991. It didn't waste a lot of time to join the UN. Actually, in March 92, Azerbaijan became a member of the United Nations. It's been 30 years, 2022, as we speak. Uh, March is coming up soon. So I wanted to ask you as the permanent representative of Azerbaijan to the UN, what assessment can we make today? of your country's experience in the UN in these 30 years? We are not currently in the 90s. The period of romanticism is over, and uh, we're dealing with uh, realpolitik now. UN is not immune from that. We joined the United Nations in 92. We joined other organizations with expectations that they would help us to uh, overcome the challenges of transition. And the United Nations indeed addressed the concerned Azerbaijan. First of all, it accepted Azerbaijan within its internationally recognized boundaries. And uh, we have pledged to implement and to fulfill our commitments, which are under the UN Charter. So Azerbaijan, by this, has also contributed to the international peace and security. 92-93 were the first years of our restored independence and uh, during those years United Nations have addressed through its uh, main bodies number of uh, situations uh, and uh, we had in 1993 
four resolutions of United Nations Security Council, which considered the uh, situation between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia and uh, determined that this was a threat to peace and security, have confirmed that um, Nagorno-Karabakh region and uh, surrounding territories were part of Azerbaijan. It has demanded complete unconditional and uh, immediate withdrawal of occupying forces from the territories of Azerbaijan. The United Nations has reaffirmed that use of force cannot be considered legitimate for changing the boundaries of the member states and therefore has established uh, sort of the frameworks for the resolution of the conflict back in 1993. UN General Assembly in 1993 adopted the emergency resolution on uh, delivering the humanitarian assistance to Azerbaijan because of the massive uh, flow of uh, internal displaced persons and uh, UN-affiliated structures, UNHCR, UN Specialized Agencies, ICRC and others uh, have helped us a lot in relieving this heavy burden on the shoulders of the government. And we're extremely thankful for the United Nations, uh, for the specialized agencies, for its institutions, which helped us in this early stages of state building, of institutional building in Azerbaijan. And gradually we have uh, built up that national capacity and uh, the transfer the ownership of all these processes to our local authorities. So that is one uh, issue. The second uh, bulk of issue that is related to economic activities and the uh, UN has deployed a field mission in Azerbaijan. The UN uh, resident coordinator is uh, carrying out on a, a regular basis uh, a number of activities in Azerbaijan, starting from social, economic, and humanitarian activities. And this is also uh, one of the tools that, in general, contributing to the success of international organization. Because we are tempting to judge the failures and success of international organizations based on the deliverables we receive from them. And uh, in case of Azerbaijan, our relationship with the United Nations has been a successful story. And we are happy that it is still ongoing, expanding, and we would be happy to, to enrich it with more substance. We would like to see more pressing issues of uh, concern, such as climate change, such as gender balance, such as issues related to the alternative energy resources, uh, water or SDGs in general, are also incorporated and uh, uh, in cooperation with the government are addressed in Azerbaijan and uh, working on these issues too. So, uh, yes, this is a different, I would say, level of cooperation if we look back into the 90s, because at the beginning we were the recipients of the contribution, but now we are providers of security. 
And we, together with the United Nations, were active in Afghanistan, in uh, Iraq or in Kosovo and provided financial contributions and many projects and realized with them. So our perception of cooperation with the United Nations through these three decades have changed. And I'm looking forward to celebrate that date of accession to UN and Geneva. Absolutely. And we were saying before, just in the beginning of the episode, we were saying how different it is for a diplomat to serve on a bilateral post or to serve in a multilateral post. And I wanted to hear from you, what is your vision of multilateralism being appointed in your early career as ambassador to countries? And now throughout your experience with the UN that spans Vienna, New York and Geneva, multilateralism seen from the eyes of a permanent representative? Well, it is a different feeling, a different philosophy from an ambassador who works in bilateral or in multilateral. In bilateral, you can be creative. You can be feeling uh, the results of, of your activity. In multilateral, it's probably more a common exercise, a cooperative effort on the part of the international community or members of the organization. And it is a long-term process when you will start feeling the results of your activity. It's not like that you brought an head of the institution to your country and then you will get this uh, immediate results. No, it's a, a long road with its own ups and downs. And then a lot depends on the environment in which the multilateralism is functioning. We are for strengthening multilateralism because we believe that for small countries like Azerbaijan, especially which is not covered by any security guarantees or, or in a member of any bloc uh, uh, or alliances, the multilateralism is the best platform to protect and promote your interest. And uh, on the other hand, multilateralism is also is a good tool to ensure and to strengthen respect for international law and international principles, interstate behavior, because through multilateralism can enforce certain uh, modes of operandi of, of member states and you can make the situation more predictable, more stable and even under control because of the toolboxes that multilateral institutions possess. In bilateral, that is impossible to achieve and you are probably aware of that. So Azerbaijan is one of the believers in the multilateralism and in international law. Although we see that the power of force now dominates over international law, we would not like to lose this uh, architecture of international security, which is based and premised on the respect to the norms and principles of international law. Yeah, and I think this is common to all small countries. All small countries are aware that one of the basic principles for the existence of the UN 
was to provide them with this security framework in which they feel protected and they feel together at the same time. And actually, one of the most famous quotes about the UN goes that it was created not for the big ones. They don't need it. It was created for the small ones. They need it most. And actually, several permanent representatives today come back to the principle of being a small country in the UN is being, in a way, at the center of the original philosophy of multilateralism. How do you see the future of multilateralism in this rapidly changing world? You mentioned 30 years in the UN. For the past 30 years, there, there have been so many changes. And when we project the next couple of decades, then we see the more change is coming higher speed. So when you look at the world today, seen from small countries engaged among themselves and with the UN in, in this thing that we call multilateralism, how do you see it in a couple of decades from now when, for example, we'll be beyond the, the famous 2030 that means so much in terms of our collective engagement on climate, prosperity, the planet? What is your view? Well, I believe that uh, the challenges we face, they define the mode of uh, response that we take. Uh, if we take, for instance, the COVID pandemics, uh, one can hardly claim that it is uh, limited to the boundaries of one state. No, it is a global pandemic and it doesn't see and doesn't know the borders and uh, the cooperation between the member states of United Nations, as well as cooperation within the WHO, strengthening, empowering WHO with necessary resources, uh, providing the legal basis for actions. Of course, this is the strength of the multilateralism, which can provide it. And I'm uh, hopeful that we can achieve and succeed in that because without achievement, we can hardly defeat this uh, pandemics. And uh, on the other hand, if we take hard security matters, for instance, the contradictions existing between different uh, centers of gravity, I would call it like this, and uh, mass media, which is on one hand of exaggerating the current uh, perception of risk and security and uh, the societal assessment of that risk, how ordinary people understand and relate toward that risks. That impacts on uh, the position of uh, member states within multilateralism. Then, of course, multilateralism advantages are somehow luring and, and uh, one can hardly believe in the strengths of the multilateralism if it see tanks or rockets on its border and it has to take some sort of measures to secure its people and population. So there are several sort of defining factors of uh, environment within which multilateralism still exist and functions. In one case, multilateralism is effective, as it is with pandemics, for instance, and the response to the disease. 
in other cases, if we take, uh, for instance, hard security topics and problems, uh, it is not. Then other forms of uh, interaction and cooperation, or other formats probably can be more effective. So I'm not dogmatic in that sense. I'm more in favor of a flexible approach. If United Nations in 1945 established uh, as a body to prevent the humanity from a scourge of war has fulfilled its certain role within this span of time of I don't know how many years since since that time, maybe we have to look again at this uh, constellation within the United Nations system and see maybe the the number of states which can take also more responsibility in terms of peace and security and uh, have grown up. Maybe we can change a number of uh, Security Council permanent members. Maybe the number of non-permanent members can be increased. And these discussions are necessary to bring multilateralism in pace with the challenges and threats which exist. So that is the feeling I experience, I would say. And in the five or ten years term, probably this would be the expected results. And this seems like a good point to wrap up our conversation. But before we do that, any final thought that you want our audience to remember? It's important to, for me, I would probably base this on my own experience, to uh, work and to achieve justice. And uh, whatever it takes, it's necessary to, to work towards that objective. And if someone sees injustice and can contribute to the correcting this situation, rectifying it, I am in favor of, of justice. I would be willing to see world more just and fair in the future. Well, thank you for that. Ambassador Galib Israelifo, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on this episode of The Next Page. Thank you, Derek Pizano, for this opportunity. <laughs>